to Maghribian Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology and many other subjects. This episode is part of Health and Humanities in the Maghreb Lecture Series, organized by American Institute for Maghreb Studies Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie, CEMA, the Centre d'études maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAT, in close collaboration with the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies, TELIM. It was recorded via Zoom on the 1st of October 2020 between Berlin and Iran and Tunis. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Tamara Turner, a cultural anthropologist and researcher at the Center for the History of Emotions at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, presenting a podcast entitled Jutba, Jeans and Hair, Bodily Modalities of Mental Emotional Health and Musicotherapy in Algeria. Dr. Robert Parks, director of the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie, moderated the lecture and debate. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagribpodcast.com. Welcome to the American Institute for Maghreb Studies second lecture in its new Health and Humanities in the Maghreb series. organized by AIMS Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie and the Centre d'études maghrébines à Tunis, uh, in close collaboration with the Tangier American Legation Institute uh, for Moroccan Studies. My name is Bobby Parks, and I'm the director of SEMA, located in Oran, Algeria. The aim of this series, is, uh, which is definitely inspired by our times, is to examine how different scholars, authors, and disciplines of the humanities explore issues of public health, sickness and disease in the Maghreb in both the contemporary period, but also in the long durée to give us a bit more perspective of illness in our times. Uh, it builds from a series of past and ongoing activities organized at our centers in the Maghreb, notably the 2011 annual AIMS conference on public health uh, organized at CMAT in Tunisia and the health and uh, social sciences series organized between CIMA and the Unité de Recherche en Anthropologie de la Santé at the University of Oran. We're very happy that so many of you joined us uh, for the series' second lecture, Jedba, Jin, and Hal, Bodily Modalities of Mental Emotional Health and Musicotherapy in Algeria. Uh, we had 105 people registered, and though likely fewer than that are logged on now, who will log on in the next few minutes, uh, the great interest that this talk and series generates despite Zoom and COVID uh, fatigue, and in the lead up, of course, to the Middle East Studies Association meeting is a testament to the importance of the topics that we're discussing uh, today and over the next few weeks. I'm very happy today to introduce our colleague and friend, Tamara Turner, musicologist and researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. Uh, for those of you who don't know Tamara, uh, she's an anthropologist and a very accomplished musician. Uh, she earned a bachelor's of music and composition from the University of Oregon. At Tufts, she wrote her master's thesis, The Ethics and Aesthetics of Musical Speech, Sounding Moral Geographies in Moroccan Ganawa Music, under the supervision of Rich Jankowski, who's a specialist of Sembeli, uh, an equivalent music in Tunisia. Uh, she spent a great deal of time in and all about Algeria, conducting field research for her PhD thesis, Algerian Diwan of Sidi Bilal, 
Music, Trance, and Affect in Popular Islam, which she defended at King's College in London. Uh, I met her during her field research in Algeria and had the pleasure of collaborating with her at, at multiple periods, noteworthy with the 2014 Ames Wara Krask uh, Saharan Crossroads Conference, and then later as a Saharan, a Saharan Crossroads Fellow. Building in part from her doctoral thesis, Tamara's current research project, Feeling the Way with Sound, is truly multidisciplinary. Uh, it focuses on music and emotion, the centrality of affect in religion and uh, ritual, particularly looking at Sufi traditions of practicing Islam, emotions in the body or bodily ways of knowing, trance and altered states of consciousness by emotional and musical pathways, medical anthropology, as well as the anthropology of magic, mystery, and supernatural phenomena. Uh, Tamara has a forthcoming article, Affective Temporalities of Presence and Absence, Musical Haunting and Embodied Political Histories in an Algerian Religious Community, which will be uh, coming out in Culture Theory and Critique this year. Also this year, she's published an article on Ethos titled Music and Trance as Methods for Engaging with Suffering, and a chapter in an edited volume titled The Right Kind of Hal, Feeling and Foregrounding Atmospheric Identity in an Algerian Musical Ritual. So without further ado, I'm going to pass the virtual microphone to our friend and colleague, Tamara. Well, thanks everybody for being here. It's really a pleasure to be with you this afternoon or morning. And thanks very much for the invitation to Bobby, Larissa, Karim, Ola, and Hyatt. Thanks very much for organizing this. I also wanted to give a special thanks to um, Salim Khiet, an Algerian anthropologist, and Wa'alam Fadel in Algiers, um, who've both done some work on Diwan and who I also I, I gained a lot and learned a lot from in the field. Um, so thanks to them. And, and then a very special thanks to numerous, almost hundreds of Algerians who invited me into their homes, into their rituals. Um, without the generosity of my research wouldn't have been possible at all. So I'll just say a few words about myself. Um, thanks, Bobby, for the very generous introduction. I'll just add a few things so you know who I am and why I'm interested in these questions. So right, my first training was as a classical musician. My original plan was to become a conductor, as there are many female conductors, but um, I became quite disillusioned with classical music, started traveling to study other musics, was very much drawn to North Africa, and especially the different meanings and matterings of music in other geographic regions. As Bobby mentioned, I began with the Ganawa in Morocco, particularly in Marrakesh, with a master there, um, Abdelatif Makzoumi, and then wanted to move on and find out what was happening in Algeria after that. So um, for me, music was always where this conversation began, this research began, and uh, I was fascinated by what it meant. It meant something quite different in these areas than what I grew up with in classical music. Um, and as we all know, in North America and in, in Europe, where music is oftentimes treated as peripheral or um, fluff to real knowledge or history, and that's not the case in North Africa and these communities I worked with. So I want to give in this talk a disciplinary framework for psychological anthropology, where I primarily see myself coming from. Um, since I know that probably the, the, the majority of my audience today are historians and political scientists, I just want to um, kind of foreground uh, the types of questions that we're interested in um, and why it matters. So also I'll, I'll touch on my methodology. So how does a person go about studying a ritual tradition like this? And um, say a little bit about myself in the field, how I was um, also received by people. And because of course we know that the way a researcher is received also affects the kind of knowledge that they, that they have access to. So that's important too. 
I'm going to primarily focus on Algerian D1 in this talk, but I wanted to point out that th these phenomena of definitely Jedba and, and how you can see that all over Algeria, and especially Jedba, you see at weddings, at festivals, at parties. So this is these, these kinds of arguments about the importance of music and how it affects us emotionally, psychologically, if we want to use that term. Um, they're very broad and it's, it is um, sort of the, the context um, that we're coming from. Whereas then the, the Buri or Hal, or, or sorry, the, the Jins or the Bore trance, that's more particular to D1. So I'll, I'll point that out. And I'm going to try to play six or seven videos for you today. And um, again, thank you, Hyatt and Ola. We, we spent at least an hour or more just trying to work out the text. So we may, we'll see how it goes with the bandwidth. Um, it might be a little bumpy, so apologies for that. I, I, I try to really make these things kind of fluid and, and elegant, but it probably won't be elegant today with uh, switching back and forth between platforms. So I want to begin with um, two quotes that are um, that will be helpful to keep in mind throughout this talk. So much of what we in the West call psychological and locate and some sort of internal space in the head, in the mind, in the brain, in consciousness, in the psyche is understood in many cultures and manifestly non-psychological terms and located in other spaces. And D1, I think, speaks to that. Secondly, by anthropologist Michael Lambeck, who also works on ritual and religion, we cannot peel back culture to reveal a purely biological layer. This is not to say that trance doesn't have psychological elements, obviously it does, but rather that they may not be any more basic than or isolable from the psychological and cultural ones. And especially the second quote um, brings to mind Geert's discussion of how we, we should not think of humanity as some kind of layer cake model where you have biology on the bottom, a layer of culture, a layer of religion, and so forth. I've heard it argued also as um, a hardware and software idea so that we're all born with the same hardware and then culture is the software that we get. But actually more recent research in newish field neuroanthropology in the work of Greg Downey in particular is showing how cultural practice changes biology. So brains will remap with certain kinds of cultural practices or skill, skill learning. So we, we could say that, that software can actually change hardware. And um, this becomes important when we start thinking about different notions of health, different notions of music in various places in the world. Uh, this is important to trance, in, um, I see, because what is considered pathological or normal um, in, a, in a culture um, is deeply influenced by the surroundings. So what we might see, what we even call spirit possession is usually glossed as something pathological or problematic certain kinds of dissociation and um, well even Jedba I mean if somebody started doing Jedba in, a, in the U.S. It'd be, it'd be quite bizarre but you see it all the time in North Africa so that's part of my point so one of the things I want to do to kind of give you a little sneak peek is to start with one of the videos here and this will also be a good way to test how this is going to go I want to play you a video of Jedba and since this is going to be a audio podcast eventually I'll just tell a little bit of what's happening in the video, also in case the, you can't quite see it if it's pixelated. So there's a young man on the left in red who um, is sobbing and crying, and he's surrounded by Mokadamin, who are these ritual leaders who are comforting him, patting him on the back, and he's moving his body in trance to work out this, this suffering. What's really interesting and one thing to watch for is um, all of the direction going on. The, the musicians are being really uh, carefully directed. Uh, it is almost like a conductor. Um, the different instruments are being stopped and started. The, the, the gentleman, the, the young man's being encouraged quite a lot. 
So this will give you just something to look for. So let me pull up now. Okay, and let's see how this goes. mental and emotional health mean in this particular context? So when we're talking about mental emotional health, this means also including possibly ideas of feelings, emotions, psychological conditions, and the self, the mind who's having these feelings and emotions. Are they inside, outside the body? And does the self actually have emotions? Um, do they, are they ours? Are they somebody else's? These are the kinds of questions that came up for me in D1. When my interlocutors were speaking about feelings, we used very generally the term excess, and um, they were often viewed to be inextricable from the environment. That doesn't mean that humans don't have them, but there's a porous boundary or threshold between insides and outsides. And this is particularly interesting in the concept of how. And here, um, this is this uh, chapter that Bobby mentioned in this uh, book on music and affect. How, in, at least in Algeria, I can say, is also a notion of atmosphere, conditions, the feeling, the groove, time. So we'll say, for example, Jebul Hal, if, if these musicians really brought a, had a great energy about it. Mazel um, Hal, it's not time yet, so conditions. Der Halo, he changed his mind. So here we're getting into kind of mind ideas. And then this is the same idea for trance. Hal is also a form of trance. So it's this kind of relationship between the environmental and personal and psychological together. So there's a porosity there. And here affect, I think, is, can be a productive way of thinking about it. Um, it's culturally specific, but it can be quite an interesting way of thinking about um, bodies and, and environments and how they work together. And this intertwining of the physical and the psychological. So here in D1 and many other contexts, Jedba is another example, um, which you can see in weddings, not just rituals. Feelings need to be worked through bodily engagement. And here, trance mainly. But this is different. This isn't talk therapy. This is a way of really physically moving through feelings in the body. And from this video, we just saw this young man is doing this. He's being encouraged to do this. This is, this is how you approach uh, if things are difficult, um, mental, emotional suffering, other kinds of illnesses. So going forwards, going towards it. This makes me think uh, in terms of trance about Antonio Damasio's work, a popular neuroscientist who, who begins arguing with consciousness begins with a feeling. So we can't separate consciousness as something in the mind. We really have to ground it in the body. We wouldn't have consciousness if we didn't have a body.
So I'm going to say a bit more about music later, but then this idea of body and mental emotional health and affect then as where music is so helpful. It is an affective process. It's something we feel as well as hear. It's, it's completely rooted in the senses. So you may be wondering what this relationship between therapy and religion is, and much ink has been spilled about this in anthropology about uh, not conflating the two. This reminds me of a great story. I was in London in February, feels like years ago, um, to give a talk on, on, for a Sufi night for, um, for Rashida Lamry, for those of you who know Rashida. Um, so it was a Sufi night and she wanted me to talk on D1. And afterwards, this woman came up and we had a very lively discussion. And then basically she was trying to convince me this is not um, any kind of religion or Sufism whatsoever. This is just therapy. So there was a, for her a very clear difference. But this was re really interesting to me because I'd heard both ways. Um, that's just to say that, that this is debated in Algeria um, also between people who know Diwan or, or know of similar practices, um, Tijania and Qadariya, they're comparing it to what they call kind of this more elite or intellectual Sufism that's more about learning where this is more popular Islam, Islam populaire. So um, I think they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, I wanted to just show you a couple other contexts um, with, with trance and Jedba or Hal. So this top left photo is from Gardea. This is a practice called Dundun. So it has nothing to do with Diwan, except for they identify with Bilal. So they consider themselves a Bilalia tradition. And because I love being able to play music and video, I want to play you a little clip of what this sounds like. So you can hear the krach, and for those of you who know the musical side of things, those metal clappers, there's very similar metric modes that are happening with dundun as in uh, D1. The bottom left picture um, is the wife of one of the masters, and there's women's groups as well. Um, they play for a lot of weddings in the MZAP. Um, and there, I was really fortunate to, to basically follow them around um, like a groupie all over the MZAP going to these women's uh, dundun rituals. And, uh, so, so that's a, also a really interesting tradition, also involving trance. And then finally, a, a women's Tijenia group that I went to in Oran, and I'll give you a little taste of that. Also, lots and lots of Jedba and Hal happening there. <laughs> One of the points here is that these bodily modalities, these ways of trance and music are, are 
it's a very large context in this region. So not just, so D1 is not unique in that. All right, so why does sound and music matter to health? And um, in this particular context, what are we talking about? So here, those ethnomusicologists, those few ethnomusicologists who are out there will know this. Um, we have to remember that while music may be ubiquitous as a practice, it is not universal in its meanings and its usage and its impacts. And as I mentioned before, um, when we're coming from a, well, I'm personally coming from a musical tradition where music was sort of considered auxiliary or it's a nice thing, it's aesthetic, you, you like it and you go to the symphony. Um, it's a very different thing here. In fact, um, uh, there was one uh, D1 elder who told me, you know, that we never talked about D1 music. There was no such thing as D1 music until probably the 60s because it was just D1. The music was totally inseparable from the ritual. It was just part of the mix. So we, we didn't think about it as this different notion. So that's really important. And then of course, that we're dealing with the senses. And we know, especially from our friend Merleau-Ponty, that senses are constructed. They're not passive. They're not natural. That different cultures in the world have a different number of senses. They understand them differently. And in the D1 context, I came to be convinced that, that sound and ways of listening and ways of hearing were very much like the gaze in, in, in um, anthropology, we need to, we have this sort of positionality of what, the way we learn how, instead of the gaze of how to look, it's kind of an oral gaze of how, how do we take something in and how do we listen to it? So music is not only social, socially powerful, which of course it is as part of a symbolic order, but also in, in the Diwan community is very much thought about as, as a kind of medicine, as energetically and, and vibrationally effective. And we can sort of compare this if you want to think about this, like Rukia, for example. I did a little bit of research on Rukia when I was in Oran. I was based in Oran, by the way, and then traveled kind of everywhere, but mostly was in the West. Um, so studying some Rukia in the West, you know, this is using sound and chanting to, to heal people, to help them in, in sickness or in troubles. Um, and also, basically, the, the Quran, this is also a fundamental relationship to sound, that it must be heard. The recitation of the Quran. So it's not just about reading it, but it needs to be heard. This is an important aspect. Given that all of these, um, all of my interlocutors are also Muslim and practicing Muslims. And then finally here, this is obviously the most potent example of this is trance and the way that music has a way of cultivating trance. And I'll get a bit more into that as we go through the videos. In Algeria, this is usually having to do with painful feelings. So not always, you will see like in weddings and celebrations, joy, people will go into trance because of a kind of rapture, almost like Darab in Egypt, for those of you who are familiar with that. But it's quite common that in intense musical experiences, people will go into various states. Not that strange, maybe if you think about, well, I'm in Berlin. So this is, a, this is club culture where we have all kinds of raves and certain kinds of trance with music here as well. Okay, so just as a quick note that there's obviously some of you who also work on trance will know there's a, a really enormous literature on music and trance um, from all kinds of angles. It's been argued from the positivist angle as causal to more phenomenological perspectives, um, such as the dancing prophets. Um, conceptualizing trance has always posed a, an existential challenge to academics. Uh, and in Algeria, feel, it's feelings and bodies of giving us registers to different kinds of consciousness. That's, um, that's sort of the, the theme there. Yes, and, and the way that the senses are constructed in these rituals. So these bodily modalities, so there's, these, these are states, so these would be various um, broad states or processes, although they're very flexible. So we have jedba, 
which literally means attraction. And this is a fairly stable sense of self. So usually this means that a person can stop themselves if they had to. Some of you may have seen this at, at, at various social events. Um, then we have how, which is sort of on the spectrum, one starts to lose control a little bit and you start to see maybe a little bit of dissociation, uh, a little bit of wavering of, of the self. And then, uh, and this is also found in uh, various contexts. Then we have Bori, uh, which is a Hausa word actually. And, and in Algeria, it's thought of as a spirit. Um, it could be a jinn, but this is bodily inhabitation of some supernatural entity that then is sort of um, wrestling for power with, with the person who's inhabited. I don't use the word possession, spirit possession. I don't like this term to me. It, it has very colonial resonances and it also tends to imply pathology. And while people are, they're not always, it's not glossed in the same way, the same kind of sickness or pathology. So I don't use that term. And D1 is the only tradition that uses this term that I found in Algeria. However, we have many different um, qualities of feeling that the individuals will use to describe trance. And to me, this was fascinating. It's um, like a virtuosity of ways of feeling one's body in trance. So all these different ways of being sick or struck and winded, inhabited, um, taken away, seized, or, or just kind of um, the look kind of being unaware. It's a bit like rib. So then we also have these verbs that people used when they were trancing of what it felt like to be in trance. So again, quite a, a large spectrum of um, ways of feeling oneself in trance. And none of these, uh, especially with Jedba and Hal, and even Bori, they flow into each other. So none of these are um, contained. You often see somebody start off in Jedba and then sooner or later they're in Bori and vice versa. They move in between. So I've been talking for a while and I wanna show you some more videos. So let's see how this next one goes. I'm gonna show you another video of Hal. And this is from, oh, I wanted to, sorry, I forgot to mention the first video you saw was from Awada and Arzu. And this next one is from Oran. And this man you're gonna see trancing here is 80 years old plus. Uh, what's gonna happen here is, um, so he's, he's very well respected. Um, we know that first because he starts to sing the texts of the song. And usually there's a, a person called the Kuyu Bungo who sits next to the Malam playing the gimbri, the kind of lute instrument who sings the texts. But in this case, Belcher, who's dancing, he starts to sing the text. And these are, this is quite significant. Then if you watch, so he starts to kind of hit himself at a moment. And now we know the trance is intensifying. Um, a gentleman brings over bukhor or incense, and this helps him to transition into sort of a more gentle and relaxed state. So he, he's a little bit agitated in the beginning, and then the bukhor helps him transition, and that is part of its role. And then at the end, quite significantly, you see him stop the musicians, and this, this only happens if somebody is really highly respected. So usually a muqaddam or the musicians will stop it themselves. So it's, there's definitely a, a power hierarchy going on here. <laughs>
right. So um, now I want to talk about this particular tradition, um, how I went about my research, how one studies this kind of thing, the types of sources I use, the methodology. And this is also part of elucidating the history of this particular community, showing how all these components come together. So I use various types of primary and secondary sources from different communities, particularly Sufi Toruk in Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco, looking um, at also sometimes population numbers would be mentioned, Les Negres would be mentioned uh, in terms of numbers. So getting an idea of how, what populations were like seems that the height of D1 was really during the Ottoman period. Um, so I was, I was quite interested, especially the really early French sources that were commenting on the social organization at the time, the way communities were grouped and that all communities had a Qaid and they had somebody in charge. There was quite a lot of, of organization going on also within these different communities of D1. I also collected quite a lot of information from locals. So the picture on the top right is of a D1 in the 1960s, approximately in Saida. So you see still these large drums, they will have these processions before a, a D1 or a Wada. The bottom right, um, it's, it says about um, the Busadia, which is actually comes from Tunisian Stambeli. This is the only photo I found that actually references the Busadia. Here, I think they're probably trying to depict the House and Magazawa group, um, which is another kind of side project I've been working on is these particular house of songs in Algeria. Bottom left is a shrine in the Zawiya in, in Saida with kind of going back with all of the ancestors, all of the musicians and Muqaddamin, um, ritual elders. So they've, they've really been documenting it for probably 20, 30 years now. And then the top left is a shrine um, at the Wada that happens every year in Arzu, put on by a very prominent Muqaddam there. So these are many, many photos of various people, as well as you can sort of see on the table, various ritual instruments and feathers and bells. Two years later, when I went back, this was 2016, I went back for um, this Wada and I found a photo of myself up there and I had been included in the, the shrine of, of history. So that was a little odd, but um, it's a living shrine. This is part of what I was doing as, as getting information from families. And then of course, as an anthropologist, ethnomusicologist, embodied learning was really important. And having trained as a musician before, this was one of my main ways in was um, playing, learning, learning the songs, um, then checking with people. And it's an amazing way to, to elicit information. The top right photo is of my malam, uh, Abdul Tif Maksumi Lahmo uh, from Marrakesh, where all of this started. Uh, left is me in a ritual. So years of just sitting in rituals and watching and listening and recording and videotaping. And the bottom left, I was fortunate enough to perform in the Beshar Festival in 2013 with some D1 groups. Um, on stage. So all of these were, were entertaining and fun. And um, I learned a lot from it as well, the way I was received. Women don't usually play this music, especially the Gimbri is only really played by men. There's um, Hasna Bashari is the one exception from Bashar, but she doesn't play rituals um, from what I understand. So anyway, that was part of this whole this discovering myself in the field as well. Uh, then there was just a lot, a lot of discussion with people um, in terms of lots of meals being had, um, discussing in cafes and, and talking to Zawiya leaders, um, more information about histories. Um, this top left picture is a particularly nice memory of spending two days with these are musicians and Mascara, and they walked me through their entire repertoire, um, very, very generous, hours and hours of going through and playing every single song in the entire repertoire of D1. These rituals are sometimes 10 hours long. So I collected about a hundred different songs for these rituals. 
So the history of this community, Diwan, like Gnawa and Stambeli, for those of you who are familiar with those traditions, evolved and coalesced out of the Trans-Saharan slave trade. And you had multiple ethno-linguistic groups that formed Diwan. Seems in, in Diwan and Algerian Diwan, we have much stronger Hausa connections in Songhai. Um, the repertoires are much richer there. And um, Interestingly, so in the repertoire, these many, many songs of Diwan repertoire, we have not just spirits and saints and, and possibly jinn, but we also have songs about particular events in the history of Diwan. And I have this little recording, Gefla, which is the Oranian or Mascar pr uh, pronunciation of Gafila or caravan. And it's actually quite a peppy song. So I'll play a little bit of this for you. <laughs> So in Algeria, in North Africa, particularly Algeria, this, this is a picture from Saida, we, these ethno-linguistic groups were, um, were gathered in Graba or the Gurbis. And this is a photo from, that's actually, I believe, hanging in the Zawiya in Saida. This was a, this was a Gurbi insight at the time. Sometimes they would also call them village negre. And apparently up until independence, Diwan was, was quite strong. It was the, the uh, changing of the social structure that did really um, shift also the communities of Diwan. We find also connections to Bilal and related communities far south as Timimun. Then next, I wanted to give some background on it, its relationship to Sufism um, before we move on to more of the ritual. So Diwan has very particular relationships to Sufism, ideas about rapture, transcendence, how, which you'll find in a lot of Sufi writings. They're not technically a Sufi group. They don't have a, a sheikh that they can trace through a silsila, so they don't have this, this lineage of knowledge, um, but they use most of the concepts, a lot of the vocabulary, and we can say basically a Sufi epistemology in the way that they approach their rituals. Various Turuk, so Sufi orders across North Africa, they're very porous. So I would often find Qadriya adepts or Aisawa adepts coming to Diwan rituals and vice versa. I, when I attended the Tijaniya one, some of the Diwan women would come and they all sort of moved in between the various Turuk, which I thought was quite interesting. So, that, so it's kind of a, a community as well, even though the Balelia groups, Diwan, because they're the, um, they don't have a sheikh, but they consider their spiritual father to be Bilal. They share rituals sometimes as well. So it's quite fluid. And they are also, there's this debate, I think I mentioned of between popular Islam or is the Sufism in Algeria. So it is, it is quite fluid though. During the annual Wada in Saida, so Wada is a large gathering here of D1 groups from across the country who then come uh, to for, for five days, sometimes five, six days of playing D1s every night. Uh, really exhausting. So basically five nights of no sleep, you sort of sleep a bit during the day, there's sacrifices and various groups um, are performing each night. But all of this kicks off with Quranic recitation in Saida. And I thought I'd play a bit of this for you as well. It's, it's quite lovely. <laughs> And last
lastly, uh, we see ziaras or pilgrimages that happen in Diwan communities, which is also quite quintessential to, to different Sufi groups in, in the region. So the carrying of the flags to the Quba of Sidi Musa, a, a saint or some would say a water spirit. And then on the left, a friend of mine in the, the, the shrine to Sidi Musa um, in front of the tomb and a lovely picture of our friend Amir Abdelkader. So there's quite a lot of these resonances with Sufism. Let's move on to the sound world here and as part of this history and what is bringing all this together. Why, why is this related to, um, to trance and why is this group particular in Algeria? These are two musicians that I worked quite a lot with. On the left, Nordin Sarji um, from the Sarji lineage, who's actually cited in Pak's 1964 book, L'Arbre Cosmique. So his, his father was one of the most well-known malams across the whole west of Algeria. And on the right, Amidahu, who's from Mascara and whose family is still in Mascara, but he lives in Oran. And he makes the vast majority of the Gimbris, I would say, in Algeria, definitely in the West. And yeah, both um, wonderful people to work with. The Gimbri, that instrument you saw uh, here on the right. So its ancestors are uh, these various other lutes across West Africa. We have the Fulani Hodu, the House Molo, and, and also in, in present day Mali, we have similar kind of larger lutes uh, and gonies uh, as well. This is a, a interesting map from Eric Cherry about the, the spread of lutes across West Africa and some in North Africa. Um, so it's quite common. Um, you'll notice that Algeria, there's something missing there. So it needs to be updated, but, um, but yeah, lutes are, are quite spread across all of Africa. Here we have um, on the left Morocco, in the middle Tunisia, and on the right Algeria. So these are various different forms of um, what's called the gimbri, sometimes gumbri in Tunisia. Three strings, um, more or less pentatonic scales, similar playing techniques, although it varies a little bit, a bit. But one of the points here is that this is this music is much more connected, sounds and feels much more aesthetically connected to West Africa than North Africa. So it's very other in its North African context. It really stands out across Arabic musics, um, other kinds of music in the region. So it's, um, it's definitely a minority group. Ritual dynamics now, we're gonna go back into some more videos and talking about what the relationship is between music and trance. As I said, and I'll bring up again, so again, the, the trance, these bodily modalities are always about ways of dealing with feelings. So this uh, photo here is a Moqeddam directing a ritual. Um, and this was in Crystal in 2016. You can see he's very much in charge. He's not only directing the man in trance in front of him, but also the crowd behind on the ritual space called the Tarah. So he is really at the top of the totem pole, the Moqeddam. Next in line would be the Malam and the Kuyobongo singing. Um, there's oftentimes a Shaush, who's also the helper of the Moqeddam, who's sort of making sure people get out of the way and take their time. So trance is highly regulated. It, it's not something that is, um, it can happen spontaneously, but once it does happen, there are rules, there are way, right ways of doing it. There's right ways of moving your body, right ways of responding. So it is, it is, as you saw in a couple of videos now, a lot of response, a lot of people getting involved and touching and making sure that the person's okay, but also keeping others away. So it is, it is a controlled and managed space, carefully monitored. So there's a few different things happening here. We have in terms of the way that the music is structuring trance. So what does it do for the person in trance? People will always say that their trance begins with some kind of affective unsettling. Um, so some way that they don't feel right. And then this, they would be encouraged to get up and move. Um, and then as the music is developing, this starts to structure their own experience. 
Some Malams will choose to work with one or two transers. Um, a lot of times they'll play to the group and people have to kind of work through their own process as a group. So there's multiple layers of these instruments coming in. The texture begins to thicken. There's always this process of, of accelerating and intensifying and um, kind of a spiral. So we have um, sort of this ritual direction in, in the figure. The ritual direction is always kind of keeping this going. First, he's addressing the musicians because they're the engine. So he's addressing the musicians who then are also working and watching very carefully the trancers. And then we also have the public around that are very involved that may help, they may carry people off to the side. But this is this kind of circle of the space is how, is how these songs then progress. There is a fair bit of musical improvisation. So a malum can then specifically work to somebody um, particularly in, in, in a Bori trance, in a spirit inhabitation, that they will directly go to work with that person. And as I mentioned, all songs then also have this temporal compression. They speed up, they quicken, and then this will drive people to the end of their trance. I have some videos of that, and uh, actually I'm going to show them later though, um, and continue with one other point about this for music nerds, those of you out there, Temporal elasticity and metric ambiguity. Basically what this means is it get, there's a sense of elasticity of meter. So uh, I love this diagram by Rainer Pollock in his studying of West African djembe drumming. So if you think about regular music um, in two, four, 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 march music that's just divided into two, we'd have 50, 50 or four groups of 25. But what is actually more happening in D1 is this sort of strange division of more like a 37 and 40, 57, 43. So you'll have this sort of offset. Um, it's not exactly duple. And then similarly in ternary or triple music that's in three or in six, instead of being divided evenly or isochronously, it's non-isochronous. So it's then kind of it's jostled a bit, you could say. This gives a lilt to, to the music. It gives a lilt and kind of a, a way of expanding and contracting. There's also a feeling of two against three there for those of you who are, are musicians, this kind of feeling that you feel that you could feel a song could be in two or you feel that it could be in three at the same time. So this kind of way of enabling elasticity, we could say, has a, an effect on, on people's natures of trance. We can talk more about that, not in a causal way, I wouldn't argue in a causal way. So in terms of the ritual order. So these boxes, it's not important that you can read what's in them. It's just to, to give an idea of the way that songs are ordered in these eight to 10 hours of ritual. So it's always predictable. It's always the same order of songs, more or less. Um, sometimes they'll skip songs if they're running low on time. Um, but you have spirits and saints. Uh, you have songs for the prophet that are always dividing these songs. So they sort of come as the songs to cool things down. Um, you might be able to read Hausaween and Mingzaween as the last two boxes. Those are more the Hausa repertoire. Um, it does vary be between regions. So in some places you'll have quite a few more Hausaween or Mingzaween um, songs. They call them Borj or Braj for plural. Um, but again, so this is really structured um, both in terms of what the, the ritual actors are doing, but the musicians are moving through this repertoire quite regularly. Um, one thing that's also happening in all of these song groups are particular aesthetics. So smells, colors, foods that have to be eaten at certain points. So it's stimulating all of the senses. They're all involved in, in these ritual worlds. Some of these song families are connected to history and memory. I mentioned uh, the one about Gafla, the caravans. There's some other songs I've been doing some research into now that come from this Fulani house, a joking relationship. So there's songs about milk, for example, a Fulani selling milk. 
so quite a, a variety of different kinds of songs, ontologies and, and hagiographies. For example, um, in songs depicting the Prophet Muhammad, such as this one, they're, they're protecting him with a cover that they, I was told this is to depict in very hot days of sort of um, creating a kind of barrier because of the heat. Uh, here we have an image from Abdul Qadir Jilani and an old man, a saint who he must move very slow in trance in, at these times. So whoever's depicting him here or embodying him here needs to be trancing very slowly and, and respectfully. And related to him, we have a, another borge for Budrabella. Here we have the Lebtana or sheepskin that is supposed to evoke um, well, I was told Sufis in kind of the, um, the way that they had, didn't have much to, to dress in. So a lot of, basically all of these songs are going to have certain objects and depictions of personages that they are um, set out to accomplish. So I wanna come back to this slide now and um, do a little bit more with videos of showing differences between these. So we talked about Jedba and Hal and Bori. And I showed you um, two videos of Jedba, which I mentioned is where somebody can usually stop themselves if they need to. Hal is where it starts to get a bit more uh, tricky, where you start to lose, the, the person starts to lose a sense of themselves. And I have a lovely video. This one is the um, Wada and Saida. It's a group from Gardea. So it's a bit from the Imza. It's a bit different in terms of the, the aesthetics. So things to watch for in this video, the man up front is involved, is engaging in a, in a trance episode. His friends come up to pat him on the back to encourage him. Yes, keep going, keep going. And he starts to get into it enough that he then requires some actual physical assistance where they actually have to physically help him and calm him down. So this is this shows some interesting moments of, of sort of teetering on the edge between Jedba and Hal. <laughs> this song this this is quite a favorite in diwan communities and people will often say oh shook shook and it's like i got goosebumps uh, so this this is a real favorite here you, you see a lot of people trancing in this song so um that was more of an example of how uh you you saw how he was struggling how his uh people came to his aid to help him transition the ways that people talk about the trance process so i i mentioned that there's this moment of unsettling and you'll see people rocking they'll begin to cry they'll curl up in a ball um they'll fall on the floor 
one man, uh, a couple of times I saw people go completely rigid and, and paralyzed. The idea is that they always have to be helped uh, to the tara, to the space in front of the musicians, and they have to work this through their body. So, right, there'd be oftentimes women around me who would start crying and you would hear the other women say to them, no, di, no, di, get up, get up. And they would refuse to until they were physically made to get on to the tara and start to move and, and work things through their body. Um, you could see people kind of go in and out. They might leave again. They might try to run out. But this idea of really working it through their body is really key. Modalities of trance, then again, are, are in, especially in D1, um, are said to be brought on primarily by Rabina. And Rabina is, is a very broad term to label different kinds of suffering. Uh, one Malam joked with me that it can be everything from uh, a divorce to a death to too many taxes. So that's quite broad. <laughs> but Rabina is the reason why people go into trance. Um, although I will say uh, people do sometimes for, for, for joy, so it doesn't always have to be painful feelings. But feelings can be picked up from others in the environment. Um, so in terms of ideas about contagion, there, were, there was a lot of discourse about uh, emotions circulating. Some of the ways that these are phrased, uh, I don't feel well. So this was kind of the most common way people talked about when I asked, what do you feel when, when you hear the song come on? What do you feel right before your song or right when you hear that melody? And this was the primary thing. And I just, I can't control myself. Something else takes over. And this thing taking over could be um, anything from a gin to a spirit to intense emotions that one, one person just has to give in to their feelings. So not being able to control oneself. In this way, the body becomes the way forward. The body becomes the key. Um, this was actually what I was told. Um, la clé is what they would say. The body is the key. That's where you have to go to, to release. And in terms of what, what the body does there, yrib, and yrib is a kind of going absent or a kind of trance. So a person will go absent or trance in order to work the important or sacred things. And swala is the term that they use kind of for these sacred or secret things. And then also this idea that there's every song has this kind of melody, uh, a theme they call Ras of Borj or the head of the Borj. Um, this theme that's typically the first thing that grabs somebody. It's quite interesting. I even got to a point where there were certain songs that I really liked and um, was very drawn to where I would start to feel dread before the song came on. And part of that was because if anybody expressed any emotion that was seen as trance, and um, in one instance where I was completely sleep deprived for five, six days, and one of my favorite songs came on and I, I started to weep a little bit and I thought I was being quite, um, yeah, quite careful about that. Um, somebody noticed and pulled me up to, to make me trance. And so this was also part of the learning process was um, how that was received. Um, that these releasing of emotions meant you need to get up and trance. So this is, this is the way that you deal with it here. One Malam also commented that James Brown was a kind of trance. This is what he used. And here he used the word latence in French. Interestingly though, they never talk about trance as a general concept in Arabic. They will just use the French. Um, when they're talking about um, these states, it's always with these terms, jedba, hal, and bori. So since the videos are not that great and also because photos sort of allow us to freeze frame um, what's going on, uh, I have a two series of photos, photo series here of moments as trance is escalating to hopefully help kind of make it more uh, clear what's going on and what sorts of uh, processes are involved. 
So this is again from a Saida Wada. Um, this young man was quite known to fall into trance in various different songs. Here he's, I believe this is right when the melody started. And so he's, he's um, taken by the melody. In fact, he would trance so often that there was always somebody there to catch him and standing behind him. Um, he would just fall backwards. But then what happens is he would sort of revive. He would come to enough in order to be able to approach the musicians who would then begin to work his state, this yichadam swala. Another idea is that so as a person is working, they are meant to bend over uh, the musicians. They will be seen bending over the musicians over bachor, so incense. There will often be uh, ritual objects, um, henna or various other uh, ritual contents that then are, are placed in front of the musicians. And this is also part of um, receiving the baraka or the blessing of these objects. And this second series is from the Wada and Arzu that you saw the first video from with the young men. So here, this is a, a very uh, considered dangerous wada series of songs. Uh, and in this song, people will often use knives and work them on, on their bare skin. So in this particular group of songs, you need to have permission uh, from a mokadam who, um, who also blesses you uh, in order to stay safe. You, if you don't do this, and if you haven't actually paid your dues, so to speak, you can be injured. I was told that somebody ended up in the hospital for two months when they didn't ask um, for permission to perform these songs. So here he's getting the, the authorization from the Mulkeddam. He's bowing to the musicians, um, showing respect. And after all, actually several people told me that if a musician plays one note wrong, the knife will go through the belly. So again, very important. Um, here he's burying his skin to show his vulnerability um, for the this, this song suite, nobody was really quite certain whether it was spirits or jinn, but it is a supernatural order. So here he's burying his skin that he's going to begin working the knives. It's difficult to see in this photo, but there's some brown, the, the knives have long brown ends. So here he's actually bending over and pushing them into his belly. The Muqaddam, one of the Muqaddams is in the blue on the left, Muqaddam Hussein of Arzu. Some of you in Algeria may know him. He's quite a quite a character. Uh, so then we also have this other Muqaddam on the right, who you may remember from the first video directing the musicians, which he's doing in this photo as well. Here you can see the knives a bit better, these sort of long brown things coming out um, towards his knees. More directing of the music. So just like we saw um, probably most clearly in that first video where the directing of the musicians is really important to controlling and to this right balance of controlling the trance and also um, kind of pushing it forward necessarily. And finally, uh, the sort of moment of apex where um, he, whatever, whatever sorts of, of emotions or affects he's going through is sort of this culmination here towards the end of the trance. So that sort of brings us back to, again, this, this diagram about um, how musicians are with, with mokedamine. So these are the ritual directors and the trancers are working together to use music to help process these feelings. So I wanna show you a few more videos. Um, I mentioned how the music is then supposed to accelerate and bring trance to a kind of apex. And I have a great video of that here. This is from, um, it's kind of a D1, but it was at the Dar um, al-Kafa in Sidi Balabas. So it was sort of a D1, but it was the whole public, any, anyone in the public could come. So it was a bit like something between a D1 and a, and, a, and a festival. But in any case, this is the same young man that you saw in the very first video of uh, was quite a dramatic way of finishing his trances. And you will, 
there's a really fascinating moment. If it comes through in the video, I'm not sure, but um, these Krakev, these metal clappers that are playing, he really wants to hear the gimbri. So at a certain moment, um, the gimbri's playing and the Krakev start to come back in and he actually sort of waves his hands, which is a known sign for no, stop. So they actually do stop. So he's he does have a certain way where he's using the music to control his own state of trance. He's involved in what he actually needs. <laughs> Okay, I don't know if you guys caught that uh, where he made the motion to the musicians, but um, that's quite a common thing to see. I have one more example of this as well. This is from a D1 in Busfer. And in this case, the Mokedem stops the music. So he's, so the Mokedem is watching the trancer and he decides that this guy's done, that he's had enough, whatever he was trying to work out. Okay, your turn's over, Nuba Nuba, your turn's over. Um, which is another way that people are involved. So sometimes the trancers can stop the music um, or the mochadimin can stop the music. Don't think I really ever saw musicians stop the music themselves. Um, usually it, it's um, songs will be cut off by somebody. <laughs> Jalapa is the Mokedem and he's watching what's going on here. He's just going to lift his hand and um, the Malam knows just this sign here is like, okay, that's good. So he's watching the guy and that's the end. I want to show you a couple more videos before we finish um, of Buri. This is the inhabitation trance. All right, so this is an example of, of Buri then and we know that because he's eating hot coals from that are being burned for the fire. So the bohor, the incense, is always kept burning with these hot coals. So he's gone over to this little fire and picked up a hot coal and started to dance with it and, and eat it. And this would only happen if it was a spirit or a jinn. So this would, and this is just a known, just kind of communally known. Um, this is for the song Budrabella. And interestingly, again, Budrabella is sometimes seen as a pair song with Abdul Qadir Jilani, a saint. So normally this should be a song about a saint, in which case you would never have somebody coming on to the Tara with their shirt off eating hot coals. But I actually often saw this happening with Budrabella, and I think there's something else going on there. Um, that it's There's this kind of pairing that often, ha often happens in D1 where you'll have a song about a saint and then a song about a jinn with the same name, 
or a, a personage a personage like Musa, Moses the prophet, and then a water spirit, Musa the water spirit. So something is happening here. I haven't gotten any explanations on that, but um, this is how we know that this is Buri trance and not Jedba or Hal. And I've never seen anything like this in any other of the trance uh, contexts in Algeria. So this is unique to Dion as far as I know. buildings they will set up these large tents and a huge screen as you can see in the background to broadcast it because there's so many people there that and nobody can really see very well so this was a good solution so they're broadcasting anybody who's trancing up there one last video i want to play you of bori trance from the same wada the reason i started filming this one was because it was it's one of the better videos i have of a young man just 
what seems to me completely dissociated, so completely outside of himself. And his eyes remain really uh, wide open and his mouth open for probably 20, 30 minutes. So this would be, I would definitely call this Bori trance. Although I should say, I meant to say earlier that people will debate this in D1. So I often, so some of my learning was just eavesdropping on conversations of women I was sitting next to, uh, debating on whether the trance they were watching was was some kind of miriah, is he, does, is he in winded or is, is it more madrub? Is it a bit more serious? Um, so these, these definitions uh, and, and labels are, are flexible. idea as well that there's a lot of different kinds of trance happening there um, with this with this beating of the bulalet which are these uh, whips of Hausa origin actually um, that happens quite quite commonly throughout the d1 ritual as well knives and whips um, which tend to be more on the on the Hal to Bori spectrum you wouldn't see that so much in Jedba so I hope you've been able to get something from the videos some idea of what's going on here Thanks very much, everyone, and I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you very much, Tamara. Uh, it, was a, it was a great presentation, and I, I think the video worked uh, more or less great. I think this brings us more or less to, to an end, and I want to thank uh, Tamara for taking the time to, to give this presentation. I also want to thank you all for spending your valuable time in being with us and, and listening and participating in the discussion. Uh, it was a great lecture, and uh, again, Tamara, uh, it was great. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you all. Thanks for coming.
you for listening to Magrebin Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagrebpodcast.com. Other episodes are also available on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page Magrebin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to SEMA newsletter at www.sema-northafrica.org to SEMAT newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org and to Talim newsletter at legation.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.